What's going on, everybody? My name is Jack Kelly, host of Point to the Spot, a U.S.-based podcast focused on the world of football. Uh, today, we have a very special episode, uh, but before we get to that, of course, joining the show for the first time in what seems like a millennia, we have my very good friend, my entirely bonkers friend, Reed Hammond. Reed, how are you, sir? Welcome back to the pod. It's, uh, we've missed you dearly. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a, a rare full house um, in the Points of Spot studios today. Um yeah, no, really good. A uh, little tired, so we'll see how this one goes. But it's definitely, um, you know, one to one to stay up for. <laughs> uh, also joining the show, a future presidential candidate, ball for Prez twenty twenty. I can't stand Donald Trump's America. Andrew, how are you, my friend? I'm doing very well. Uh, it has been a busy weekend, but I am very excited for our show tonight. Rita's right. I think it is one worth staying up for. And then, of course, guys, why you are actually listening. Uh, joining the show tonight, we have Louis Bien, the associate editor at SB Nation, uh, joining us from New York City, uh, also you know, author of Escaping Kakuma, uh, a very a long-form story that we're going to be discussing on tonight's show. Louis, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, doing well. That's good. Um, so like I said, uh, we want to talk about Escaping Kakuma. Um, to you know just kind of get a broad sense of it um kakuma for those who for the listeners uh it's the third largest refugee camp in the world uh and within it uh they have their own premier league soccer is a huge deal uh and louis was actually there um periodically i don't actually know the whole details um so i guess i'll turn <laughs> it over to you what what was the process of writing this story uh, what was it like being in kakuma uh and i mean you said it's a year in the making what what exactly went down for this you know final product to come out so like i guess when i say it, it was a year in the making is it, it was an idea that kind of germinated out of the olympics because last in rio was the first time that the olympic committee had ever sent a refugee olympic team to the olympics um, so I'd done some reporting for SB Nation around that. I did a story on how the refugee Olympic team came together. Um, I did a follow-up on like sort of this film-made series that had been going on in the camp. And, and of course, my reporting, I learned that there were like many Olympic events being held around the world in different refugee settlements. Um, and so I started doing reporting on that around in maybe August. And then I kind of realized that uh, I started talking to you know, people working for the UN in these places. I started talking to refugee athletes themselves. Um, and it kind of turned me on to the fact that all these refugee camps and settlements had really robust sports cultures. Um, and then from there, I kind of took all these stories and all these sources I had, brought them to our editor-in-chief, Elena Bergeron, and said, hey, I could do a story based off phone interviews from New York, 2,000 miles away, or I could actually go to one of these places and um, see it firsthand and like do do these people as much justice as I think they deserve. Um, so that's kind of where the story got started. And I think that when I say it was a year in the making, I'm not saying that like I worked 24 seven, 300 for 365 days to make this happen. But um, I have been reporting it for a year and it sort of came out of the Olympics. Um, and we just kind of took it from there. And I was, I was really lucky to have the support that I did. No, that's awesome. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you actually got to go and see Kakuma. How long were you there for? And, you know, what was what was it like actually being inside the camp? Um, so I was there for a week straight. Um, and we timed it really, really well because it was the opening week of the Kakuma Premier League. Um, so we got there, and I think the second day was the 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 final match before they determined the 16 teams that were going to play in the Kakuma Premier League. 
Um, so we get there and we saw like the elimination match for the 16th place in the league. And then our last say there was the opening match of the season, um, which was between the two best teams from the, the year prior. Um, and being in the camp, like, honestly, it was, I don't know. I mean, it was, it surprised me in the sense of how normal it felt. Like it didn't feel like how I imagined what a refugee camp would be like, which was like settlements of, of tents and, um, people essentially sleeping on the dirt. It was a really, it was a built up settlement. Like it felt like a place that had been there for 25 years. Um, you know, there were markets, there were butchers, there were shoe stores, there were cell phone stores. Like there were places that people could in theory, like live relatively normal lives. Um, I think the biggest difference between here and anywhere there and anywhere else in the world is the fact that like, they just didn't have opportunities to, to live life the way they wanted to. No, that's, that's really interesting. And uh, I mean, within the story, you talk about how they were broken into districts and it was broken, you know, based on where um, the refugees had come from. And it's really, and it was interesting to me and it stood out um, how much it was like these people had settled in and that this refugee camp had become like a full functioning city with shops and stores. Um, and I mean, sports leagues, like you said, uh, and we, you know, we spoke a little bit before the pod and communicating uh, a little bit last week. And you said that you're not, you know, a big soccer guy yourself and that, you, you know, you know, follow the sport super closely, but how did you actually come about to having it be, you know, the center focus of the story um, when they have tons of different sports leagues that go on uh, within the camp? Yeah. So it was kind of serendipitous. Like, I mean, I, I went into it expecting to write about running, honestly, because I, the, the reason why I, I picked, Kakuma was that Olympic team. Well, five members of the 10 member refugee Olympic team actually came from Kakuma um, and they were all runners. So that's what sort of like turned me on to Kakuma at first. And the fact that I talked to people there and it, it seemed like a particularly good place to go. Um, but then when I got there, well, leading up to go there um, and then talking to as many people as I could there, I, it, I, soccer was pretty much the biggest sport in the camp um, and that they were doing something called the Kukuma Premier League, which this, the organizing NGO, which is called the Lutheran World Federation had poured a ton of resources into. Um, it seemed to me to be the, the thing that sort of centered the camp. Um, you know, you had crowds of 10,000 people showing up to the matches. Um, you know, there were people's weekends were, were sort of centered on it. Like it was, it was the sort of centralizing like social event in the camp more so than running, uh, more so than basketball, more so than volleyball, more so than any other sport. So I guess I, I guess this was supposed to be a story that I thought was going to center on many different sports, particularly running. But once I realized like the force of football in the camp uh, or soccer in the camp, that's kind of what I decided to center on. One thing that really stood out to me when I was reading it is that, I mean, obviously the main focus of the story is soccer, but really what vividly, you know, having, having read it was – that stood out was the people. And, and you, I think the really the excellent thing about the piece is you very vividly see the camp and also see these personalities that you describe. Um, can you speak to whether that was um, Shabani Olivier, who, who was the leading goal scorer in the league or some of the coaches, um, you know, could you speak to what it was like to actually sit down with, with some of these people who have had very, you know, in many cases, traumatic pass um, coming either from the DRC or from Ethiopia or South Sudan or what have you, and then talking about what role 
soccer plays in their lives? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that if you ever do a story like this, like the thing that you'll find, and it, this is, again, another thing I wasn't really expecting was that people are so incredibly open to talk. Um, you know, obviously these are people that have gone through trauma that I could not possibly imagine, but like they also people that don't get a lot of contact to don't feel like the rest of the world is paying attention to what they do. Um, I think the fact that, and journalists do go in the camp and when journalists do go in the camp, like people tend to perk up just because like they know it's a chance to tell their story. They know it's a chance to, um, they think of it as, you know, a Hail Mary chance to, to get their story out. Someone's going to pay attention to them and someone's going to give them a chance to leave. Um, so I think for better, for worse, that's what motivated a lot of people to talk to me. Um, it's like sitting down with Olivier, sitting down with Olivier, he, he was a very easy person to talk to just because he was a very like outgoing personality. So that, that wasn't hard, but it was sort of interesting for like to talk to this guy who was very, he was very humorous. Like he had a great sense of humor. He was full of life. Like obviously he, he was, you walked down the, the middle of the market and everybody would shout his name and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time to like, you know, reveal some very like personal details about his life. It was like hard to like sort of reconcile the two just because like to hear like him talk about say his parents getting killed um, in his voice was, was like off putting just as an interview because it was, I don't know. It, it just shocked me how like open people could be, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And another thing that interested me was like, I've read about some other refugee camps where largely people are from the same place. But what was interesting about this is that there were all sorts, I mean, people came from different conflicts in different countries and reading like at the end when there's the, the controversial finish in this match between the, the, the title winners and the second place team. And instantly the coach of the team, and I think the team was mainly Congolese, although you can correct me because you would know, um, instantly claimed that, you know, there was favoritism of some sorts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed like, though, that people coexisted generally pretty well. What is the climate like with that? I, it was another thing I was kind of wondering as when I was reading. Yeah, it's really interesting because they're not – because it's funny because, like, for example, in – South Sudan, right? There are two major tribes. So like the, there's Nuer and there's the Dinka. And in South Sudan, they don't really get along. Inside the camp, my impression was that they get along a lot better than they say they would if they were all living in their host country. Um, so, for example, in that last match, the, the team that was called Neth was primarily South Sudanese, primarily Dinka. But like, if you were, if you were uh, I'm sorry, they're primarily Nuer. And if you were fan, if you were from South Sudan, South Sudan, and you were Dinka, you were rooting for them because they're from South Sudan. It didn't matter that they were like a rival tribe. So it's so like it's, and you were right too to say that like yes, Okapi was primarily Congolese, but they were also made up of other nationalities. Okay. Um, so I get. I mean, like you're never gonna fully erase like those tribal and those like those divisions on on you know national lines but i would say that generally in the camp uh things are a little bit more friendly between you know rival cultures um and i think that's sort of it's sort of the silver lining you find in a place like that um you know they're they get a lot of like 
they get a, I'll, I'll put it this way. They get better education in the camp than they probably would in a lot of their host countries if they had stayed. So like they get a more progressive education. They, you know, their the emphasis to coexist is, is better emphasized. Um, so it, it's sort of weird. Like it's, it's, it's odd that in the sense that like, it is like a progressive place. It's not a great place. It's a bad place to live, but um, you do, you do become a little bit more open-minded or a lot of people that live there become a little bit more open-minded than they would have, they had stayed in the, in their host countries or in the native countries. What stood out the most for me of what was a really good read. I really feel like I need to commend you. Um, it like, it, it read like an absolute like Salinger novel. It was, it's, <laughs> Um, to be fair, it's a long piece, especially for sports journalism. But it's mm -hmm. it's one that's just such a like an easy read and like a something that you really should do to the listeners. It's um, definitely fulfilling. And what stood out the most to me was um, the quote that stood out the most to me was "Happiness exists in football." And you know, reading the piece, um, I think you gave it a very fair light. But it's it's definitely like this camp is not you know, a beacon of opportunity and a beacon of, um, of movement. Uh, and do you touched on it a little bit in the piece, but d does this sport and like this, this league that is kind of, um, you know, not necessarily stitched together, but not as formal as, you know, about as formal as you could expect in a refugee camp. Um, does it serve to be a little bit of, perhaps not opportunity, but, you know, as he said, like hope almost. Yeah, I think, I think the answer is yes. I mean, it's hard to say because football, soccer is just not going to get you out of the camp. Like, it's a sad thing, but like, you know, there's one, there's at least as far as I could tell, there's one player that's ever come out and played professional soccer out of Kakuma. And he's a guy who left when he was 11 years old. He was he was resettled in Australia and essentially, for all for all intents and purposes, you know, became a professional soccer player in Australia. Um, the fact is that just people don't see them, you know, like who's you know, you're not. There are no national teams sending scouts to Kakuma to see if you know there's someone that could play on like the Ugandan U23 team, or the South Sudan U23 team, or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, and this was sort of like a hard thing I, I had, a hard task I had to spell out in, in the piece itself, but it helps to like be a little delusional sometimes. Like it helps to tell yourself that, okay, no one's gotten out playing soccer, but you know, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring or what's going to be like a month later or a year later. Like I wouldn't say that like guys there are necessarily hopeful or like, they, they believe for a fact that this is something that's going to like give them a better life somewhere else. But it's something that distracts them with one, which is hugely important. Um, but two, they know it can't hurt. Right. Um, so whether it's hope, I don't know, that might be too strong a word, but I mean, it's, it's better than nothing basically. Yeah. It, like, as you touched on it, it breaks the waiting, which is right in some ways, like, you know, the worst part of the camp is, is the waiting, the incessant um, stillness of it all. Right, right. Yeah, idleness is something that if you talk, that, that was the one thing that I think was really important for me to understand beforehand. And it really helped to do pre-reporting when I did it. It was just like, 
talking to a lot of like protection officers and development officers in a bunch of different refugee camps who said that idleness was the one thing that really weighed on refugees in particular. Like it was the one thing that they felt that they couldn't stamp out, I guess I should say. Um, and the thing about idleness is that, you know, over time, you just find it's just harder and harder for you to occupy your time, especially if you don't have a job and you finish your secondary education. Like all you have to do is sit around, talk to people and think about how bad things are gotten or how, how many opportunities you miss, things like that. Um, so the idleness is, I, I would say like, it's potentially something that a lot of people don't realize or don't factor in as like, as, as a hardship for refugees. I mean, obviously like the conditions are bad, you know, you're walking around bare feet on dirt. There's no plumbing, there's no electricity, there's disease, there's, you know, not enough space in the hospitals, things like that. And that's all terrible. Um, but just mentally the idleness, it just, it, it, it's cumulative and it, 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 it causes a lot of issues. Yeah, that, that was actually one of the big things that struck me when, while reading it and then watching the video actually after I, I got through the story, you know, when you're talking about that, when you don't have a lot to do, you sit around and think about either what your life could have been or what was taken from you in the past. Um, and it, what it seemed like to me was that, that these matches from like a fan's perspective, a supporter's perspective, and you know, as someone who's like eminently privileged, you know, sometimes my worry is like, oh, am I going to be able to watch the game? You know, English Premier League, what have you. Right. But for them, it's like something to put your energy into and to, to, to have something to do that, well, maybe not like productive does provide some sort of opportunity. Is that right? I, that's, that was kind of my takeaway. Do, do you think from like a fan's perspective, that's kind of the role it plays or, or what would you describe it as? So you're asking like, what is like, be, what does being a fan of, of soccer do for someone who's a refugee? Sure. Yeah. Or in, in your perspective, like for everyone, not just the people on the pitch, mm -hmm. but for everyone else, kind of what does it add to the community? I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a social event. I think that's, that's really important. Like people are, you know, they're, they're coming out to see their, their friends, their neighbors, um, people of their nationality go and compete and do their best, you know, like it's, for, because I mean, if you, I mean, what a lot of people want, I guess, is status. You know, they, in a when you live in a refugee camp, you don't necessarily feel like you're somebody. You're someone who's reliant on food rations. You're reliant on firewood. You you have to line up, you know, four times a month to get these things, and that's pretty much all you have to do. And it's at some point you just feel like you're being fed. You know, um, I think that something that like one of our fixers told me who, who was another refugee in the camp told me was that like, she was just tired of having to ask permission for things. Um, you just, so you, you just sort of feel infantilized, I guess would be the right way to say it. Um, so what something like Kuma Premier League does is that it, it, it's something, it's an activity in the camp that has status. So if you root for a team and their team wins, you feel good. You feel like you're above or you're elevated, you know? I mean, it's just like rooting for, I don't know, rooting for Wisconsin. Wisconsin goes to Rose Bowl. Like you feel on cloud nine because something you're associated with um, is doing good. And it sort of gives you, it gives you validation, I guess is a good way to put it. Um, so, you know, people use sports in a refugee camp just like they use sports all around the world. You know, it's, 
except in a refugee camp, I would argue it's more helpful just because you have so many things that, you know, besides soccer, you have so many things that sort of emphasize your own lesser status, I guess. I think, you know, I mean, we've been talking a lot about that stands out. Just something I'm curious about, um, one, you know, um, individual in particular, um, Dang, um, that you, you know, he was a coach and he also was a school teacher. Um, he, and I mean, you spoke with him pretty extensively um, based on the reporting, uh, or at least what I took away from the story. Um, and I think I think it's interesting because, I mean, the, the story itself, uh, and I mean, of course, we're a podcast and we do audio, so this isn't great, or this isn't great, but the, the photos that go along with the story are visually very stunning. Um, yeah. The one photo in particular of him in the classroom with his hundred students. Um, and I, I'm assuming that, or, you know, maybe not, but that you got to see him in that setting away from the soccer pitch being a teacher. Um, is it interesting that, or like, how is it perceived around the camp that for a lot of these guys that, you know, they play on the weekend or they coach on the weekend, but then they just integrate back into everyday life. Is that something that's pretty common? Are they seen differently or is it, pretty easily to go back and forth between being heavily involved in something like the Kukuma Premier League, being a, you know, pretty popular coach back into being somebody's grade school teacher. Um, yeah, I don't think it's too difficult. Um, you know, I mean, they, you know, I saw Dang it up at every match I saw and he would just ride his bike up. Like it wasn't like, um, like it kind of, it grants you status, but like, you're not far from your homes. You're not far from your schools. Like you're, you know, it's like, riding your bike around the corner to go play a soccer match basically like it's not everybody's kind of sort of got their routine in life so i don't think like it gives you i don't think it like takes you out of regular life too much if that makes sense um, no, no no definitely right um and another i mean you kind of talked about it um the status thing with you know people get nicknames like cristiano or mm. um it's kind of fun and like you said he was like uh Olivier would, or Olivier would walk through the market and people would recognize him and people would join and march to games and everything. Like fan culture in Kakuma resembled fan culture in a lot of places around the world. And I think that mm -hmm. that's something that's really cool um, and that, you know, kind of lends itself to the fact that like in a lot of ways it is like the everyman's league, um, which is something that is almost more inclusive than leagues that you would see elsewhere around the world. Yeah, I thought that was really cool, actually. That was not something I was expecting until I got there. Like, the day of the match, I was I was expecting it to be big, for sure. But, like, we walked to the market, and we were actually late because I was, I, was, I was shadowing Okapi as they were getting ready to, to do the match, and we were late. And when we showed up, there was just, like, a pack of people in the middle of the market, and there were, like, people of Uvazela's walking around and flags and, like, people chanting and, like, singing. And it just didn't... I didn't expect that kind of fanfare. I mean, it really did feel like you were walking up to, you know, a college football game or something. Like, um, the whole procession of it just felt, I mean, it felt weird because I didn't expect it, but it felt at the same time like something I had done a million times, like going to see college football games. So, like, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, you touched on it. It was, it was really something I wasn't expecting. That's awesome. And uh, we'll get you out of here on this one, you know, kind of final question. You spent, you know, a week there. You were with these people. You saw how they lived. What was the thing that stood out to you most? Um, or, like, what's the biggest thing that you learned from this experience of writing the story and being a Kakuma? Um, I guess the, the biggest thing that I came away wanting to impart was the fact that, I don't know, like, I, I, 
I was, I'll, I'll say this, I was terrified to do this story because I was, you know, some dude like helicoptering in, like I've mostly been like an NFL writer. Like I, this is not my normal beat by any means. And I, and you, you think about stories that you think about stories about Africa, right? Maybe you see something on CNN or you see something in like USA Today or some newspaper and it's, you feel like they, the stories take either one of two forms. Like it's a very, very sad story or you're reading about like violence. And when I saw those stories, I never felt like the people seemed normal. And I didn't know if that's how things were or if they were just being misrepresented. And I went there and I just met a lot of really normal people who had been through traumatic things. Um, people were fun. People were awesome. People were incredibly friendly and welcoming and nice and like not, at least not towards me. And like, I thought that was the biggest thing that I was, I was really happy to see. It was the biggest thing I was looking for. And it was the biggest thing I wanted to say in the, in the course of this writing that these are just people like everybody, except they got a shit hand and that they were born in war torn countries, you know? Yeah, no, no, definitely. That's, um, it's definitely something that stands out to me is that like, from the story is that, you know, these people do live their lives, you know, as to the best that they can. And that, you know, the Kukuma Premier League, you know, being there is just another aspect of it. It's not, you know, it, it, they don't let living in the refugee camp consume them. They still go about and try to enjoy their lives as they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, I don't know, it might be a line in the stories. <laughs> Maybe I'm repeating it, but like they make happiness any way they can. Um, you know, people are, are going to find a way to do that you know when they're when they're on their own when they're and they're when they're their own reflective selves like obviously that's it's hard for them but like you know they have relationships like anyone else like they're not they're not sitting around being miserable all the time and you know as maybe silly as it is i don't know but that was something that was like eye-opening to me that you know people were just living their lives you know no no most definitely um well guys that's all the time uh, that we have for today. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. Of course, guys, you can find us all um, on the social, social media, as uh, Reed likes to refer to it. Uh, Mr. Hammond, where can they find you uh, out there on the Twitterverse? At that one kid, Reed. And Andrew? At Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L. Uh, and Louis, where can they find you if they want to, you know, if they have further questions to, to talk to you about? Uh, you can find me at Louis Bien. So that's L-O-U-I-S is in Sam. And then B is in boy, I-E-N. Awesome. Uh, of course, guys, make sure that you check out the story. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, Escaping Kakuma. Uh, you can find it on SB Nation's site. Uh, it's been all over Twitter. If you are somewhat in the, uh, in the world of soccer Twitter, I guarantee that you have seen it. Louis, thank you very much for coming on and sharing some insight about this uh, incredible process and this incredible story. We really enjoyed it, uh, and it's awesome to hear the insight from the person that actually got to write the story. Um, thank you, guys. This has been really, really fun. Uh, and I, I hope that we, uh, you know, were enough of a presence here from Wisconsin to uh, make you miss <laughs> Madison. Oh, my God. Desperately. <laughs> um, well, that's going to do it for us, guys. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, make sure to check out the podcast on Twitter at point to the spot with the number two. Uh, and until next time, take care.